welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I am a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I've been doing this podcast for several years. I appreciate your loyalty, your support. On Healthcare Unfiltered, we tackle a variety of topics, whether it's related to clinical care, whether it is conference coverages, whether it is new updates, policy, mentorship, leadership, and everything else in between. It's a variety of topics that are of interest to you. I am honored and privileged to have Dr. Julie Graylow, who is the Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President of ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, our society. And she is the top medical voice of ASCO across the globe. I actually got to meet Dr. Grelo and get to know her first as part of her global work and disparities work, where she worked tirelessly outside of the US as well as in the US to mitigate disparities in cancer care. And I was just fascinated by the amount of energy that she holds by traveling to low middle income countries, spreading the word, education, and providing a lot of expertise in breast cancer and beyond. Uh, Dr. Graylow became the CMO of ASCO um, uh, after Dr. Rich Shilsky stepped down, and she actually assumed her role during the pandemic, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, previously, she was the Jill Bennett Endowed Professor of Breast Cancer at the University of Washington School of Medicine, Professor in the Clinical Research Division of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, as well as Director of Breast Medical Oncology at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. It's it's what I wanted to, to discuss with Dr. Grelo uh, first, really her career journey. How did she get where she is today and what made her decide to become the Chief Medical Officer at ASCO? And and really know a little bit more from her about a life in the day. What is the life in the day of a medical, of a CMO of ASCO look like? I would love to know more from her about this. And then we're going to really talk about how she addresses hot topics in oncology that is facing oncologists, patients with cancer, and the society, and specifically drug shortages. Why in the world do we have chemotherapy shortages in the United States of America in 2023? How could not how could we not have cisplatin or carboplatin? These are drugs that could cure certain patients with cancer, but how does ASCO address these issues? How does ASCO work with whether it is payers, whether it is manufacturers and oncologists to make sure that we don't have that much of shortages and to make sure that we provide uh, patients with the care that you that, that they need. Uh, just to give you an idea of the amazing work that Dr. Grelo is doing, which uh, and she's trying to actually make sure that we don't have these shortages. She is a humanitarian winning the ASCO Humanitarian Award in 2018. 18 for empowering women cancer patients and survivors globally, and we're going to talk about that. And before I air the episode that we taped on June 27, 2023, I'd like to plug the show by asking you to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and let me know what you think about the show and how we can make it better. I mean, it is perfect. It's probably you cannot make it better. Okay, I kid. 
Obviously, there's always room for improvement. Do not forget to let me know by reaching out. Visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com and check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. And if you like it, don't forget to rate it on Amazon and Goodreads. Without further ado, Dr. Julie Grelo, CMO of ASCO on Healthcare Unfiltered. Julie, thanks for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. I know that you are extremely busy and you probably get asked to be on gazillion um, shows. So giving me some time and giving my listeners some time uh, means a lot to me and to them. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I think this is going to be fun. Yeah. And you'll get a t-shirt. I'm going to plan, you know, we have to talk about that. But Julie, it's, it's interesting. I always think that careers are shaped for various reasons. And it's probably if you go back, if all of us go back to medical school, it's hard for us to project where we'll be in 25 years after medical school. And I'm going to assume that when you went to medical school, you did not think you're going to be CMO of ASCO. But somehow careers uh, uh, progress. Tell us a little bit about you. I mean, how did this start? Why did you want to be an oncologist? I mean, what 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 made you decide to even be a doctor, a cancer doctor? And how did you end up here? Wow. Go back, going back uh, 30, 40 years now. Um, I think even when I was in high school, I was interested in medicine and so kind of went along the route, um, you know, when I entered college of being pre-med, uh, I, I was just intrigued by the science. I was good at math and science and that seemed logical. When I was an undergrad, um, I actually was looking for a little a job opportunity to buff up my CV to apply to med schools. And, and I actually got a job as a lab tech in an oncology lab uh, uh, that was uh, doing tumor immunology, you know, back in the very early 80s. And so I saw that I was making monoclonal antibodies and the lab oh. was treating some patients with lymphoma with some of the first antibodies um and you know we i could see that the science going on in the lab was directly impacting patients that the research was so cool so i applied to med school knowing that i wanted to go into oncology which drove my classmates crazy including my husband who was my undergraduate classmate we went to med school together because i knew what i wanted to do but i thought i'd be an immunologist i didn't know i'd end up in breast cancer. So I, I did allow experiences along the way to shape shape me. Then, um, and then I almost accidentally got involved in global oncology. I mean, I was a new faculty member and um, I was specializing in breast cancer. That's what the- made you specialize in breast cancer? Did you meet yeah. someone that- uh... Yeah, I, well, you know, I, was working in a lab during my fellowship um, on this really interesting new molecule we had found called HER2 that seemed to have some implication for breast cancer. And so I kind of used that as a way 
to take my my clinic and see more breast cancer patients. And and then we kind of bonded. I, as a young woman, I was interested in helping them with the survivorship piece, with the healthy lifestyles. In 1995, really as a very junior faculty member, um, the patient said to me, once our chemo's done in the adjuvant setting, you know, we're told go back to your life and live it and, you know, we don't see the patients as often then, and they said, we don't know how to get back uh, to our, our normal lives. We've been through a lot. We have side effects. Most of us have been put through menopause, you know, help us. And so, you know, we, we chatted about it, started a lecture series called Living Well with Cancer, and then um, had an opportunity to participate in a triathlon as a group of, of uh, cancer survivors. And were given free registration and training, and that ended up becoming something called Team Survivor Northwest, a nonprofit that we founded in 1995 that was all about helping women cancer patients get some physical activity in their life. And it wasn't a bunch of athletes. You know, a lot of these people, one of the my patients I was the most proud of at that first triathlon, she pushed her wheelchair around the 5K course. Wow. And she had the biggest goal and the biggest barrier to meeting that goal of any of the people and she made it. And so it was all about setting goals, helping the support of other women cancer survivors around you. So anyway, that was breast cancer. Then the global piece was, there was a project being done by a, a nonprofit called PATH uh, in the Seattle area on breast cancer in Ukraine. And they wanted a medical oncology expert locally uh, as they applied for this grant from USAID to do this Ukraine breast cancer project. And I said, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll advise you. And then they got the grant and that led to four years of project um, in Ukraine on understanding what was happening with breast cancer and then working with the Ukrainian government, with the Ukrainian doctors on how do we improve. and connected with patient advocates in that project, which really was very inspirational. And I continue to meet with the patient advocates uh, from Ukraine, um, haven't seen them since 2017, but hoping to be able to go back there someday soon again, but introducing them to other patient advocates in the region and letting them learn from each other, support each other, helping them work with their ministries of health, work with their physicians, um, their national cancer institutes on improving cancer care in the region. So. And with global, I mean, I mean, you, you're, you know, uh, Ukraine uh, obviously is in Europe, but you've, you've gone to Africa, you've gone to a lot of places and, you know, as you do this, what do you do on these trips? Um, is it more education? Is it seeing patients? Is it, what, what's what's the goal when you're going to spend a week, let's say, in Africa? What what are you trying to accomplish? And you're doing this on behalf of the institution that um, obviously you were in, in Seattle, or this is more on a, on a personal level. Well, um, these international trips really vary very much. Um, uh, in May, I spent a week in Malawi, um, in uh, Africa, and that was really bringing together patient advocates from Eastern and Southern Africa. The Ukraine project kicked off something I called WECAN, the Women's Empowerment Cancer Advocacy Network. But then when I started 
going to Uganda as a result of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center partnership there. Um, the Ugandan patients, the Ugandan Women's Cancer Support Organization approached me and said, can we do a version of what you're doing in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, but do it for East Africa? I said, if you're inviting me in, let's look at what that might look like. It'll probably be very different from what's going on in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, but sure. So back um, more than 10 years ago, I think it was 2013, we had our first weekend meeting in Uganda. We had about 10 to 12 countries. Uh, we tried every year to have another weekend meeting rotating through Eastern and, and Southern Africa. And the Malawi meeting was originally scheduled for March of 2020. And guess what happened? We have a little <laughs> pandemic. So three years later, I've got a new job, uh, you know, and, and all of that. But we pulled together the patient advocates from, I think, 12 uh, African countries. And we brought for breast and cervical cancer. And we had some education. We had local um, experts um, meet the advocates and speak to the advocates. And we had the Ministry of Health kick off the opening ceremony. So we're, we're educating and empowering the advocates. We're introducing them to their local government officials and physicians and healthcare providers. But most importantly, we're creating a network where they can support each other and show each other what they've done and best practices and how they had successes. Um, and uh, so that was what I did, you know, that week in May of 2023 now, um, which was really thrilling to see going back to 2013 when we had the first weekend meeting in Uganda and seeing how amazingly developed and professional, uh, the achievements that these patient advocacy groups have made and um, thrilled to see that success and to be able to support them. Um, I'm trying to hand it off to them. I think they've grown that they can take this and I can just give them some broad uh, support at this point. But um, but it's that's that's one of the things I do internationally. So then then I mean you're you're doing the global stuff, you're doing research, you're taking care of patients with breast cancer, and um, somehow the CMO role at ASCO opens up. And uh, we all know Rich Shilsky uh, was the first CMO of ASCO I, uh, when, that, when the organization decided to recruit this. How did this come about? Did you, did you think about, maybe I want to do this next? Did they pick up the phone and call you, hey, Julie, would you look up at this role? Like, how did this just come about? And Maybe what, what you know? How did the interview process go? I'm, we're always curious here uh, in the oncology community. What does that look like? Like, do you actually have to come with a pitch slide deck and say, "This is my vision as the CMO"? I, whatever you can share with us, just to get an idea. Yeah. Well, you know, I was very comfortable in my career and where I was. I had spent almost thirty years in Seattle at the University of Washington and the, the Fred Hutch. And I was executive officer for lung and breast cancer within SWOG. So I had, you know, my, my clinical trials piece. I was leading the, the breast program um, within our institution. And I had a great program, great faculty and staff and patients. And um, the global piece was going well. And so I saw the announcement that Rich was stepping down 
as ASCO's chief medical officer. And I looked at it and I said, well, this would be a great job for somebody. And I didn't even think much more about it. You know, I had been in Seattle for 30 years and, um, you know, but was not really looking to leave. But then I actually got a couple of text messages from some of my former mentees or faculty that, that had seen it and they said, this is you. You know, and so after getting a couple of those, I said, you know, this is great. Um, and so, uh, you know, I wasn't ready to leave Seattle, though. So I I, I emailed Rip Shilsky and said, hey, I'm not throwing my hat in the ring, but can I talk with you about what the job is? And then I emailed Cliff Huddis, our CEO, and said, I'm not throwing my hat in the ring, but can I just talk with you about your thoughts about this? And then after talking to the two of them, I said, well, I might as well, you know, explore it. What what can it hurt to explore? I was still trying to figure out how could I possibly leave my my current job, you know. And, uh, yeah, so uh, started interview process um, with uh, key people within ASCO and on the board and um, became the finalist. I think a large so what, part what of kind of questions do they ask you? Like, you know, give us like a couple of questions that, you know, the board or folks ask you. Well, so the, um, the departments that this role oversees are CENTRA, the Center for Research and Analytics, Care Delivery, uh, Policy and Advocacy, and International Affairs was being moved over under this position. And um, so... You know, I kind of had the street cred with the research, uh, you know, moving up through the cooperative groups, being an executive officer and SWAG. But they asked me about that. What was my vision for the future of the taper trial for research being done within ASCO for how ASCO could support research in our central group? Um, they asked me a lot about the international piece, because even though ASCO, a third of its members are international, um, you know, we had a small but mighty international affairs uh, department, um, but we really hadn't exploited it. Although in the previous couple of years, the ASCO strategic plan had added a pillar that was make a global impact. And so now the board, you know, our executive leadership team was really focused on how could we make a global impact. So a lot of the questions were about my vision for how ASCO could play a role, not just in the US, which is a lot about what care delivery and policy and advocacy are about, but also outside of the United States. You know, I'm not, I practice in an academic setting, I'm not an expert in the business side of oncology in the community side, but you know, they did ask, push me on that. How am I going to help represent our members, you know, who might be out in community practice? And so one of the pieces I brought, um, you know, in answer to that question was that, you know, I'm actually on the board of a rural access hospital in Washington state. That's also kind of just a coincidence of, you know, we have a, a house up in remote Washington on an island and the island was looking to build a community hospital. They just had a a clinic at the time. And one of the main goals of some of the people pulling together this project, because they had all had family members uh, who had been impacted by cancer, was to be able to deliver chemotherapy on the island. 
And how could we do that in a safe way where we wouldn't have a full-time oncologist on the island? And was that responsible? And how could we connect? Um, and so that was very interesting. Um, we, we built it. We way under-budgeted for the infusion room. We didn't think the need would be as great as it was. And the patients loved being able to stay on island. Even if they were their oncologists were off island, they could get the bulk of their treatments um, in the infusion room on the island, not have to take the ferry off or fly off island. And so that gave me an exposure to, I'm still on that board, to how does you know, rural medicine, where we have three oncology certified nurses and, and, a, and a medical oncologist who comes over about once a week, you know, to, to make sure things are going well. So it gave me a bit of exposure to a very rural practice and, and uh, to the, bus the business side of how did we make that infusion work and all. So not I, an I always say that in the interview process, you either start liking the job more or uh -huh. you can, uh, like, you know, I mean, that's why, I mean, you're interviewing them, frankly, like they're interviewing you, right? I mean, you want to know if this is what you want to do as well. And obviously, as you interviewed, you continue to like it because that's where you are right now. What kind of questions did you have for them? Like, what reservations do you have? Because to be successful, obviously, you have certain things you want the organization to give you back to represent, well, what kind of things you really wanted to see in place so you you could position yourself for success? Yeah, well, um, you know, one of the things I was interested in is uh, the ability to be innovative and to do pilots of some new things um, and not have to go through all of the approvals and all of that <laughs> typical academic institution would have. And, you know, Cliff assured me that, you know, we can move on a dime, really. Um, you know, we present to the board, we present to the executive leadership team, but if it's something where we say, yeah, let's go try this, it happens, it just happens quickly. And the thing that I didn't have to ask about, but that was very, very important in my decision was about the ASCO staff. I mean, I was actually shocked to learn that we have about 500 staff. Um, and I knew a lot of them. I had been on various committees um, uh, over the years and I knew ASCO. I mean, really, I've been loyal to them since 1995 when they gave me my career development award and they they really made my career. I was on the public affairs committee early, you know, was the chair of the communications committee, uh, worked on resource stratified guidelines and then led a task force in international affairs. I was also on that committee on academic global oncology. I knew the ASCO staff and how great they were and terrific they were. And I knew I would have great support. So I didn't have to ask about that. I I knew the people that I'd be working with and was thrilled to think about, you know, working with them in the future. The hardest part was that my job is based in Alexandria, Virginia, and I still live primarily. That was my next question. I mean, as you thought about this, and obviously you loved the opportunity, you were in Seattle, it's in DC in Virginia. Um, did you was that ever a concern to you? I mean that was the biggest drawback, actually, was the distance and could I really do it? And although we have a lot of flexibility, especially COVID offered even more opportunity for remote work, 
if it could be done, our employees are allowed to become remote workers. Um, but the, the five members of the executive leadership team, our job is based in Virginia. So we're expected to have a presence here. So that that was one of the hardest parts of the decision was really the distance. And we were in the middle of a pandemic at the time uh, when I, I took this job as well. So, um, but it's worked out. I'm here in my office in Virginia. So today. Do you go back and forth a lot? Like, do you do you alternate uh, Seattle versus uh, Alexandria? Yeah, I do. I, you know, I'm I'm here one or two weeks a month. Um, I do. I can do the rest remotely. Um, and uh, I have a nice apartment here, so it's very comfortable. When I come here, it's two blocks from Moscow headquarters and two blocks from the metro station. So I, I just made it as easy as possible to come and uh, not think about it. I have, you know, a nice place to stay. And um, yeah, and I, yeah. I'm very productive on long plane flights. So, yeah, well, that's that. I mean, you have a lot of miles, let me tell you. Um, but what what does what does a day in the life of an ASCO CMO look like? I mean, I, I think that um, it seems like you're obviously overseeing four major organizations within ASCO that you just mentioned. But how how do you how do you spend your day? And um, and I have to ask about the you know life family balance just because when I with so much travel in Seattle and this, you know, how do you kind of shut down and and you know, just try to get a little bit of a respite from it all because you have a very, very busy lifestyle. At least that's what, what we're seeing on the outside. Work balance piece of it. Um, so I don't have children, so that makes it a bit easier. Um, you know, uh, my husband still works in uh, Seattle. Um, when the pandemic hit, he went three quarter time. So he could maybe travel a little more, be in DC with me a bit more. Um, you know, he came to the ASCO annual meeting and then we went to the bio meeting afterwards and then came down to DC together. So, you know, he travels with me sometimes. And um, I really think our house up on this island that I talked about, um, yeah. you know, where I'm on the, the board of the, the hospital, um, that which we've had for more than 20 years, that's our our rest place. It's right on the water. It's beautiful. It's we can hike, you know, in a national park right from our door. We have a boat we could go out in. That it's really easy to decompress. So I can decompress quickly when I'm up in a beautiful place, you know, on the water, um, and then get back to work on Monday again and you know go full full force. Uh, but um, yeah, the work life balance. I mean. You know, finding time, just blocking out days where you it's like, I won't even turn on my computer for one or two days when it's, you know, a weekend and we're up on the island. Yeah. And, yeah. and how and how do you spend your, like, what's a day in the life of a yeah. Ask a CMO look like? Well, um, it's very different. And I am the medical voice for ASCO. Cliff is kind of the business side of ASCO. Um, and then our presidents, you know, also we we um, use them and their skills, et cetera, to be another voice um, for ASCO. Um, 
you know, something that I did for the first time ever a couple of weeks ago was I testified in a House subcommittee on drug shortages. And so work at it, working with our policy and advocacy team and then our marketing communications team, we created a testimony, went in front of the health subcommittee of, of energy and commerce and testified on drug shortages and what legislative changes we might be able to make that could impact the drug shortage problem. And, and specifically, it was about what we might introduce in the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act, which is an act that's been around for quite a while, but it needs to be renewed by August. And so could we slip in some things related to drug shortages as a, you know, a, a national security threat that could be put into that package? So that was a fascinating experience. I mean, the last two and a half, three months, I've done probably 30 press interviews on drug shortages. I mean, when hot topics come up, I'm the medical voice and I speak for what ASCO's recommendations are uh, to impact whatever the, the issue is at the time. It's a perfect segue in terms of what is the uh, hot topics that are really happening. Uh, but before I get into a couple of the hot topics and focus a little on drug shortages, uh, I always try to figure out the relationship between ASCO executive, like, you know, Cliff, you and others, and the president of the society. I mean, obviously, you know, let's say Eric Weiner, who is the outgoing president. What uh, what what does that look like? You know, does the president come to you? Because you're the medical voice, so of the of the entire ASCO, but then the president of ASCO is the one for that one-year term. What does that relationship look like? And when do you go, for example, to the president and say, hey, let's do this, versus when he would come to you or she come to you and say, maybe this is what's going on? Well, I, I think there's a good back and forth. Um, you know, several years ago, we recreated the president position, so it's really a four-year position. And so we spread the work because the president is being asked to speak everywhere, right? Uh, um, we spread the work across four years. So you're the president-elect, the president, the um, immediate post-president is chair of the board, and then there's the post-post-president. Um, uh, and so it's spread over four years. So luckily, the, the four years of presidents, the four presidents at any given time, there's only one who's the, the true president, um, they all are much more engaged with each other and we can carry themes, um, you know, from president to president much easier. The president really is also representing all of our members and the board is too. So, you know, we take our direction from the board, any big new programs or things, you know, come, uh, we present to the board, they give input or they bring it to us. I mean, Eric Weiner, I've known forever. We were both breast medical oncologists, both involved in the cooperative groups. He picked his theme, partnering with patients, the cornerstone of cancer care and research. Um, you know, and my job was to support him, but also to help with that theme, partnering with patients to come up with ideas, have back and forth. Um, Lynn Schuchter is our current president as of uh, the end of the ASCO annual meeting. She is very interested in, um, you know, the support, uh, supportive care and palliative care. 
So I think her theme is the art and science of cancer uh, from care to comfort. And so I'm looking for opportunities to bring the palliative care piece, the supportive care piece in um, to the annual meeting, but also things all year that will build up her theme. And then continuing over Eric's theme, you know, right. You know, all of the, the presidents in a row, the whole equity, diversity, inclusion. When I started, Lori Pierce was our president, and we did a, a lot of work. Her theme, equity, every patient, every day, everywhere. I mean, that's still informing pretty much everything we do. So it's a back and forth. Um, you know, we support each other um, and, uh, you know, help, you know, spread the word, make sure our messaging is consistent too. Before, you know, we're all representing ASCO and our members. That's what, you know, we're a professional society. We're representing our members. So as part of this representation, obviously you deal with a lot of these hot topics we talked about. And I think, um, you know, there's so many that we could talk about, obviously, but I really want to focus maybe on a couple of them. It's, you know, you already alluded to it, the drug shortages. It's hard not to talk about this, obviously. It is, it affects, it directly affects patient care, right? I mean, there's so many other things, but this affects prescribing treatment that could be curative in certain circumstances, and you, you know, you switch on Twitter every day and people talk about rationing care and all of these things, which you do in low middle income countries probably all the time, or we're not used to this in the United States. Uh, and some of these drugs, like for, for us, it's like, we think it's silly. How could you be short of carboplatin or cisplatin? Like, how is this a possibility? So you're faced with this as the medical voice of the society. What do you do? I mean, you can't make drugs. Uh, you can't, I mean, I don't know, like, you know, obviously you have to issue statements of, I guess, disappointment and things like that. But how are you able to handle a crisis like this and try to hopefully resolve it or 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 pressure folks who are able to resolve it? Well, um, there are many ways we can tackle it. First is to help understand what's happening and educate our members and the public about when we first started hearing about sites not being able to get access to these drugs, what was going on. So researching what had happened, um, you know, and trying to figure out how long we thought this would happen and how severely it was affecting our members, you know, because we were hearing kind of just word on the street that certain sites weren't able to get these drugs, but others thought that they had plenty to last few months. So understanding what was going on and then educating, trying to be transparent about what was really happening. And then um, coming up with regular updates. So you know, this is changing on a day-to-day -day basis. So quickly created a web page where we could put you know, here's what's happening. Here's the testimony now that we're we're giving to Congress about maybe some legislative things that we could propose that would be fixed. Um, we've started developing guidance for specific cancer types um, that rely heavily on the platinum agents. And what do you do if you don't have platinum agents? What are acceptable alternatives? Or which ones do you really need to save the platinum agents for because there's no good substitute to so that guidance being added. We came up with ethical principles for how you would decide how to ration, if you will, and that's on our website. Um, you know, drug shortages are nothing new. Um, we started work on this, I think back in 2012 was 
one of our first statements that was written about drug shortages. And over you know, a period of the next several years, a lot of the childhood leukemia drugs, all of which were off patent, you know, cheap, shocked that we can't get these basic drugs, they kind of rotated in what was, you know, in short supply. And childhood leukemia, if you can get these drugs, you get very high cure rates, right? So it's a small number of patients who are impacted, but a huge impact because with the full regimen, you know, you had high cure rates. So we've been working on this, even 2017, 2018, there were a series of some summits that we and other organizations participated in where we came up with recommendations to help, you know, with the drug shortage situation. And so this, this is the most severe that we've ever seen and impacting the most patients that we've ever seen. But we've had drug shortages in cancer and beyond cancer, you know, for a decade or more. And it's mostly an economic and a market problem of what happens when drugs go generic, especially the sterile injectables, because they require, you know, a much higher level of production and quality, you know, a pill, you know, it's not quite the, the same in terms of all the monitoring and the, the sterility and everything is with these sterile injectables. And so we went back with this drug shortage and went to our recommendations from 2017, 2018, looked at them. Almost none of them had been enacted, you know, and, and pulled them back out again, dusted them off and came up with, okay, these are, these are still our recommendations. There are legislative there are regulatory and there are market things that we can work on and then going in front of Congress or to the FDA, or, you know, we're trying to figure out what our impact can be at the market level as well, you know, at the economic level. It's fascinating that in the United States, we pay the highest amount for the on-patent cancer drugs, all these, and we pay the lowest amount for the generics um, out there because of this free fall where it goes generic and companies compete and they underprice each other and then they underbid and underbid to the point where some of the highest quality manufacturers drop out of the market yeah. because it's not making them any money. In, in Europe and other parts of the world, the, these generics cost more, not markedly more, but you know, they, they pay more for these in exchange. You know, they make long-term contracts. You know, lots of times it's the government buying. So they can make a long-term contract. They make sure to spread it out over several manufacturers, you know, so that there's some stability if one of the plant goes down. We need to look at some of those strategies for how we incentivize high-quality manufacturing, maybe bring some of it back in the U.S. again so that we're not so vulnerable. And that we have redundancy in the system so that not only are there multiple manufacturers of a given drug so that if one plant goes down, you know, it's not this crisis, but also where the raw materials come from. That's what this crisis is all about. It's, you know, the, the raw materials uh, that go into making um, the, the platinum agents. It's, it was a plant in India, these active pharmaceutical ingredients, API, they call them. And the FDA doesn't have the legal authority to demand to know where a given manufacturer is getting the raw materials from. 
if they can ask, but they can be told proprietary information. Well, it turns out that we didn't have redundancy in the system for the platinum agents for where they got the platinum raw materials from. We knew we had like five manufacturers that we had approved mm -hmm. to make the platinum agents and import them, et cetera. But we didn't know that this one plant going down was going to impact basically all of the manufacturers that are approved in the US uh, for the platinum agent. So, you know, there's things we can give more transparency at, at, at the FDA level. Um, we can give incentives for high quality manufacturers. We're talking about stockpiling, but whether that be at the government level, at the institutional level, or at the manufacturer level, you know, how does that work? How do we help support the, the good high quality manufacturers to be able to make a little bit of profit and you know off of these drugs yeah. where, where do things stand now like today we're taping this for listeners uh this is airing on july 11 but we're taping this uh, about 10 days before the end of june where where do things stand in terms of drug shortages today we have a severe shortage of cisplatin and carboplatin um you know as of June 27th, we're yeah. talking, um, you know, the FDA has approved a new manufacturer to import from China, um, Cisplat. I don't think I've seen, you know, a major improvement uh, there. The, the, the other manufacturers are trying to ramp up. They're trying to eke out. We are reporting each time more Cis or Carbo is available for purchase. We are ASCO is tweeting it. We're putting it on our website. We're saying, here's the company. Here's the vials they have. You know, go at it. It's it's really severe still. And, um, you know. Do, do you, you know, see it uh, Do you see it resolving in the next couple of months, improving? I was hoping we it would still, we'd have to scrimp and save, you know, and, and you know, use some alternative regimens through the summer. Um, I'm not convinced of that right now. We don't know when this plant uh, in India will be up and running again. That gets to some of the transparency of, you know, exactly what were the issues and what are they doing and do we have an estimate? There are also a good 10 to 12 other cancer drugs on the FDA's drug shortages list now. Nobody's saying they can't get them right now, but there are they're on the drug shortages list because there's something going on. There's a problem with the plant or, you know, there's been a, a report you know, of some issue where this could immediately become a problem. And what we really need to do in the short term is shift it to knowing as much ahead of time that this is, so we can approve imports from other countries. You know, the rest of the world has this plant and cargo plant. You know, they're just getting it from other manufacturers. So if you had a lot of advance notice, you could do some temporary importation approvals in advance. Um, if you you know, had redundancy uh, in the manufacturer and the raw materials. You could you could see what the impact would be of one plant going down. Uh, Does ASCO have, uh, or do you have, on behalf of patients and society, can you, I don't know, pick up the phone and call manufacturers and say, hey, maybe, I mean, if there's a way to wrap up a little bit more, there's, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. It just seems to me that uh, maybe there's a way, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we're not directly calling the manufacturers. We know they're working, uh, you know, as hard as uh, they can. What we're working on, 
one thing we are working on is um, we sent letters to all the payers saying, hey, we're hearing from our members that there are um, pre-auth problems going on when a substitute regimen is um, being proposed for a patient because you know the cheapest regimen most likely includes a platinum agent. Those drugs are cheap. And now a different regimen is being proposed because platinum is unavailable. And we were hearing from our members that there were pre-auth problems. So we wrote to all of the payers and said, hey, this is let's talk about this. This is an issue. And I, I, it's on their radar now. Because what happened was they just had all these algorithms and it said, you know, for this disease type, you use this, and this is the preferred regimen. And when that wasn't what was being of entered, you know, it was what. So, you know, that, that's the kind of thing we're doing is to try to eliminate that. Um, and we're trying and to... The, the pre-auth is another thing, right? It's another hot topic that you're tackling right now in general. Yeah. It was, it was one of our uh, three or four high priorities when we had our advocacy day on the Hill back a few months ago was um, was tackling pre-auth um, and uh, streamlining it. it. It's obviously a big headache uh, for all of us in clinical practice. And um, what can we do when it is Evidence-based. I mean, we do need a system in place. You don't just go off and use non-evidence-based expensive regimens, right? But when, you know, you're using evidence-based approaches, um, we shouldn't have these big delays. And the, the pre-auths are not just in the drugs, right? They're also in the scans. I mean, the scans, in many ways, was, uh, you know, is sometimes a bigger problem because um, they're just being flat-out denied and then the whole waiting on the telephone to try to get somebody to see it. And the patient now is having symptoms and you need to see what's going on and you can't just go and do it. So that is a big strategy and we're working on it potentially with some legislation um, to try to help with that. So a couple of other hot topics, uh, just, I mean, ASCO probably, or you have to deal with is that one comes to mind is AI, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, I, I obviously AI is here to stay. Um, it's not clear to me today the impact of AI directly on clinical care, diagnostics, therapeutics, all of that stuff, uh, as well as really, uh, as well as the impact on clinical trials and things of that nature. But you know, one of the things that intrigues me is that any patient could go in into Chat GPT or other engines and type whatever they want, and they get information. And I, I, I still don't know how accurate the information will get. So when ASCO looks at AI and directly how this is, uh, you know, um, affecting or impacting patients as well as oncologists, do you feel you have, as a society, tried to look into it, or are you just in an observation mode right now? What, what, where do you stand on that? Yeah, good question. I um, just came out of our vice president's meeting. Our VP of journals, you know, is is talking about what our journals are doing in terms of the whole AI thing. What are we going to accept? You know, I think we need some standards across the the, the industry. Um, you know, ChatGPT is not a co-author. You know, but we know people will be using it you know, to form some basis of, of you know, starting papers, for example. Um, so we're struggling with how do we deal with it in our abstracts and um, in our publications. 
with respect to patients being able to go into chat GPT and, you know, asking questions, they've been doing it with Dr. Google for yeah. a while. <laughs> now, Dr. Chat GPT, um, which happens a lot faster and summarizes a whole bunch. I do think we have to be very careful, you know, about the accuracy of uh, what's coming back out. Uh, it is pretty impressive, though. I've played around with it and, uh, you know, uh, uh, asked it questions and, you know, uh, uh, I think we're going to have to tackle it. I saw, not remembering, you know, who said it, so I'm not going to be able to credit, but I, but on Twitter I saw, you know, that chat GPT is uh, not going to replace oncologists, but oncologists who use AI are going to replace oncologists who don't. So I think, you know, that does make sense. I mean, you know, I think we're it's here, and it it's not going to go away. And so we should embrace it for what's good, and then speak out for the parts that are potentially dangerous, and and just embrace it, make our lives potentially easier. And another thing, I'll have to ask you just in a few minutes remaining because I want to be very cognizant for, of your time. Um, I mean, ASCO obviously is a medical society, represents everyone, and I'm pretty sure you try to stay as far as possible from politics, just because politics, unfortunately, in the U.S. have become very de de divisive recently. Uh, but it's, I don't know, how do you, you navigate this? So, for example, um, I know that uh, you've been uh, trying to address abortion issues, as an example, and... Uh, uh, abortion could be a very heavily politicized question, which I believe is going to come up in the presidential debates and things of that nature. But but where you sit at ASCO, which obviously you represent people who believe it's okay and people who don't believe it's okay, how do you strike that balance, stay out of politics, stick to the ability of representing the society in a way that helps patients? Um, we have a set of guidelines for any kind of hot topic like abortion, like climate change, like, you know, things like that. We have a set of guidelines that we go through, um, you know, does this impact our members and or their patients? Um, you know, what is the piece related to cancer that um, is part of this issue? And can, can we, by speaking out, actually play a role? And so with the, the whole, abortion issue, um, we stuck very tight to how does it impact cancer patients? And so, you know, a pregnancy, a diagnosis so that occurs during treatment, um, expanding it a bit to the whole fertility preservation piece and, and you know, the, the creation of embryos, et cetera. Um, and so we spoke to the, how does it impact our patients you know, and their their healthcare providers in decision making about giving safe treatment, and and so saying, you know, abortion is evidence based when you have a new cancer diagnosis and you can't give these drugs; they are not safe to the fetus, and so it should be an option discussed and presented with the patient. And so we took that that tack that we're specifically talking about it in the context of cancer care. Now, um, you know, and that kept us in our own, you know, 
you know, we didn't go beyond that. Um, we're having a series of three webinars with the National Cancer Policy Forum um, starting uh, in July, addressing cancer and the Dobbs uh, decision, uh, where we're gonna talk about all these issues. Um, so when, when we stick to impacting our patients and, and their providers, you know, we, we are trying to go beyond that. Um, uh, I think we're respected. And um, I've actually, you know, I, I've been surprised. We've, we've worked with some groups that have presented scenarios of patient situations to, you know, people in red states, blue states, whatever. And when they present the scenario of a young woman with leukemia, and at the time of diagnosis, they do a pregnancy test, and she also finds out she's pregnant. But she is very ill, and we need to get her in and get treated very quickly. And and so, you know, abortion uh, is an option uh, at that point. Um, most people, no matter where they're from and their political beliefs, actually said, oh, didn't think about that kind of a circumstance, you know, and would be willing in that sort of a situation uh, you know, the patient's life is in danger, you know, and the baby needs a mother to be able to raise it, that they would be able to think about that differently. So um, so that's kind of interesting feedback that even groups that were, you know, very opposed to abortion more broadly would accept that that was a scenario um, that they could support. So well, you're 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 doing really amazing, amazing work, Julie, in such a really short period of time. I mean, I think you're 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 not only elevating the level of the society, but you're really representing us uh, everywhere, globally and locally, and uh, you're inspiring a lot of uh, young as well as uh, future generations of oncology. Is there anything I should have asked you that you'd like to? leave us with uh i know that uh you know I, i'd like to keep talking to you for the next two hours but i know that the time is limited so if, is there anything i should have discussed or talked to you about in the short period of time well we'll keep our conversation going for sure i guess i just want to really leave with the message that um you know i want to hear from our members uh uh we we are here to help oncologists uh better serve their patients. So I love the interactions and the ideas. We can't do everything, but just knowing what the issues are, um, you know, my email is really easy to find. It's julie.grelo at asco.org. Um, but love hearing what's going on. How can we help? What are the issues? Where do you think we might be a little off target or, you know, where, where we should direct more of our efforts? I mean, you know, we're, we're a professional society. We're here to serve. Well, Dr. Julie Grelo, um, thank you for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much. Thanks, Jaddy. Looking forward to getting my T-shirt. Okay, folks, thank you so much for checking out Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you for listening, for supporting the podcast. Don't forget to let me know about the podcast and what you think. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. You could follow me on Instagram, Shadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. Or you can send me an email to Shadi Nabhan, oo at outlook.com. I appreciate your support. 
If you can rate, subscribe, and refer your colleagues to the show, write a brief review. This will always go way along in making others know about Healthcare Unfiltered and spread the word. Visit my website, shadinabhan.com, and check out my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. Special thank you for to Dr. Julie Grelo for spending an hour with us on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking about all of the hot topics in oncology and inspiring all of us day in and day out with the amazing energy and the amazing work that she continues to do every single day. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a say from Lao Tzu. A leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we did it ourselves. Until next time, take care.